0: Welcome to the Paragol Podcast, this is Jerry Pitney, and today I am joined by Judge Randy Fellows. Randy, thanks so much for coming on. It's
1: my pleasure. Thanks for having
0: me. So I learned something new about you before the podcast even started. We were uh, getting our picture made, and the courthouse was in the background, and come to find out part of the reason that building is standing is because of some of the efforts that you, along with some others, put in to make sure that was preserved. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Uh, Sometime in the late 80s, maybe like 1990, Marianne Ann Schreit called me, probably the most genteel, wonderful person you could ever hope to know from an old Paragol family. And she called and said, "Um, I'm looking for someone who might be interested in help save the courthouse. And I said, count me in. Mm. And so she and Evangeline Cothran and I were probably the initial three, followed very quickly uh, by Judge Gerald Brown. Um, we, uh, we got on the agenda to go talk to the quorum court about, uh, the possibility of studying, uh, the efficacy of, uh, the viability of saving the building. And while they had no place else to go, they had no plans for a new courthouse. They had no way to pay for a new courthouse. And it was a six to five vote to even let us study, uh, w- whether or not it was, it was viable, uh a, as a uh, a building um, so most people thought or at least half of them thought that's a
0: done deal let's just and, and what a very
1: it. important person in making sure that happened that it did happen was then county judge david lang uh i mean if david didn't meant for that building to to fall that building would have fallen mm-hmm. and he was he's a very unsung hero in that but we formed uh um the green county courthouse preservation society we obtained 501c3 status which is makes it donations tax exempt. We promised them that we would um, not spend one uh, lo- nickel of local tax money. We didn't. We haven't. Hmm. Um, and the thing that really kind of put us over the top with them, they gave us a year. Um, there was a new grant by the uh, U.S. Department of Transportation that, um, and one of the—I noticed in looking through it, um, one of the things that you could obtain uh, grant money for was to, quote, improve the viewshed from a highway. You can see the courthouse from the top of the overpass. Hmm. So redoing the courthouse, getting the clock tower that are back on would improve the viewshed of Highway 412 East. Was the clock tower not on? No. The clock tower had been taken off in the 60s. Why? Why all the other things they hadn't done. Um, (laughs) It was just stored somewhere? We received, no, it was just literally torn off. The the current clock tower was built on the ground on the northeast, northwest corner of the building. In fact, we had to stop, we had to ask them to stop working on it once during a jury trial during closing arguments (laughs) because the jury couldn't hear. And, um, but we had an original clock face and then we had a lot of photographs. So using that original clock face, we could reverse engineer all the size of everything so that we know that clock tower that's on there now is an exact duplicate of what, mm-hmm. except for the fact that the gearboxes look like your lunch pail when you were in the eighth grade, as opposed to the giant wooden gears that originally sure. ran it in the first place. So we, got, we received a $180,000 grant, eighty twenty match, from the United States Department of Transportation, uh, to improve the viewshed of highway 412 East. And we got two of those. Wow. And that was really where our early money came from. And, and that uh,
0: was what year did you say?
1: I'm going to say it was probably more like 92 or so. I think the clock tower went back up in 95. Okay. And it was a huge deal. Um, uh, there were hundreds of people, Gathered around that whole area there to watch this giant crane they brought in from Memphis, literally pick up that clock tower that, that was sitting on the ground, raise it up high enough. Oh, that's and cool. Set it on the that video still exists. That's um, cool. You'll, you'll, you'll I you'll, need to
0: find that video. I
1: ha- I have one. You do have one. It's on
0: VHS, but yes, I have. I'll one. come by. I know where you live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so
1: was the courthouse still in use? In oh, the yeah. early 90s, that old courthouse? Yeah. The, in fact, uh, Judge David Goodson, who was from Paragould, uh, had to hold court across the street in the old city hall, which no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had court scheduled that day, but nobody wanted to be in the building when they put that clock tower <laughs> back up on top. So he was holding court across the street uh, in the old city hall.
0: Wow. I just cannot imagine that courthouse holding as many people as it seems like the new courthouse holds. It's so busy over there.
1: Uh true uh and and you know when you think about the building um it was built in 1888 without electricity without plumbing Mm. um and and there are so many unsung heroes i we mary ann and and i kind of had this uh, uh, approach that we took to it so a generation before me maybe maybe, i'm not going to say it was her generation but there are movies by mickey rooney and um uh, judy garland where they would, somehow they would say, oh, let's put on a show. And there was somebody in the group who could do every single thing that needed to be done to put on this show. Mm. And that's, that was our group. Mm. Somebody could do everything that needed to be done. Roy Green, amazing on what he knew about making sure the right type of cedar shingles were used. Not shakes, but shingles. Mm. Uh, and Gerald Brown, I mean, uh, <laughs> there's a funny story. Judge Brown, who was an amazing man, um, he was the money raiser. And there's a story about a local businessman who Judge Brown had visited apparently many times. And the businessman finally says, Judge, how big a check do I have to write to make sure you never, ever come see me again?
0: Persistence.
1: uh, Yes, because all of the grants we received were were matches. You know, you've got to say if it's $100,000, it's an 80-20 match, you need $20,000. Yeah. And we'd, we'd promised the quorum court we would not spend or ask for one nickel of local tax money, and we never did. There's not a single penny of local tax money involved in the renovation. Wow. And to, and to say we renovated it is a bold-faced lie. It never looked that good in the first place. Mm. So, and if people wow. who haven't
0: been through it, they need to. It's iconic. I mean, it's on, it seems like the cover of anything. It's parable related. And so thank you for that. I hope those that are listening, one takeaway even early on in this podcast talking with you is um, that's how things happen. You know, we, we look at these, something like a beautiful courthouse or anything that we like about our city. And we often just think, oh, that just kind of happened. You know, like it just, it just is what it is. It's like, Typically, it's like the bridge that uh, Donna's talked about or whatever. I mean, like, these things take a ton of work. And it happens with people like you, just citizens in the city saying, rolling up the sleeves and saying, you know what, yeah, I'll, I'll take some responsibility you know, for that. We,
1: we took cussings from people over the idea of saving that. And I, I'm, I'm a firm believer, and I think uh, certainly all the, the folks, and, and, you know, you start naming names, and the problem with naming names is you forget some names that you need to name. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh about who all was involved in that but sure. it was a huge team effort and and I think every single one of us believed that we could simply will it done and we did and you did
0: well thank you for all your work I'm curious obviously you're serving as a judge right now um other than that I don't know just a ton about your background your history how, how did you get here are you from
1: Paragold? Um, so I was born in Leachville, Arkansas, in uh, March of 1956, the day after my dad turned 21 years old.
0: What? When's your birthday?
1: Uh, it's March the 21st, 19- 1956. Okay. March 18th. So. All right. Um, and my family were farmers in the Boot Hill of Missouri and the uh, area around Buckeye, Arkansas, uh, which is between Hornersville, uh, Missouri, and um, Manila, Arkansas, and um, we farmed there generationally, farmed cotton. Mm. And, um, uh, there was a clinic there run by a man named Dr. Rodman. And I think he delivered my dad's youngest two brothers, myself, my brother, my cousin, Mike oh, wow. Hamrick. And, uh, in fact, he delivered Steve Clark, Steve Clark and I were friends. And, and that was something we had mm-hmm. in common. We'd both been delivered by Dr. Rodman, uh, and then grew up uh, on that farm until I was almost 10 when my mom and dad moved us to Southern California, which was phenomenally lucky for my brother and me because mm. Southern California in 1965 through when we returned in 1974, uh, bears no resemblance socially, politically, scholastically to Your the mind current was opened Southern California. Yeah. Uh, and so the quality of education yes. that Joel and I received was just absolutely amazing. And then my grandfather retired from farming uh, at the beginning of the 74 uh, crop season. And we returned. Um, my dad and Joel, my brother, uh, who was an exceptional athlete, came back um, in the uh, late winter, early spring, whatever you want to call it. Because, you know, you got to get your cotton garden ready. You got to fertilize your wheat. And Joel wanted to go through um uh, practice spring practice with and where we lived uh whether what city we chose to live in because the farm is kind of uh centrally located between kennett blivel Paragould, uh, had to do with who was supposed to have the best football team really and it was Paragould. bill messer uh, yeah. uh who uh bill's wife wanda uh and my mom were um uh niece decent aunt and niece and um so that's why Peregal was chosen. Um, mm-hmm. I mean Joel was who's two years younger than me, uh was uh Orange County running back freshman running back of the year when when he was a freshman in high school. Wow, in Orange County. Orange County, California. And if and when when you're when you're me and you love history and your little brother is the running back of the year socially in high school, that's tough.
0: <laughs> yeah. So did it, y'all came back. How old were you whenever y'all moved back to Paragould?
1: So my sainted mother uh, stayed out there with me until I graduated in uh, the second week of June, okay. uh, and then three days after high school graduation, here I uh, we set out for Paragould, Arkansas. Okay. Uh, but uh, I, I mean, we we have a very good, close uh, group of friends in California. We're in contact every day. We literally mm. email. There's about 20 of us. We email every day. We have a reunion every year. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and then about 10 or 12 years ago, I started something that we call the Southern Culture Tour where I arrange things usually around an SEC football game somewhere, and as many as a dozen of them will come back, and and we do that. So we've been we've been to Bentonville, Fayetteville twice. Uh, probably the coolest one was – Memphis, Clarksdale, Mississippi, uh, and then a game at Oxford. And these are your friends from California or from Paragool when you moved here? These are my California your friends. California friends. And yeah. some of my Paragool friends, David Dudley, um, uh, uh, he's he's now as integrated with that group of my California friends as any of them are with one another.
0: So it sounds like you've really prioritized your friendships. Well, they were, I, it's a value I, for you.
1: I, I, they are. Um i'm not the most social person in the world i'm very very shy kind of guy mm. um but um the, what the friends i do have uh i would i hold them very dear and um, we uh um a lot of us are very very much of a, a like mind men and women mm-hmm. and uh i'll be going to uh california in a few weeks we uh our My group of friends will meet uh, at a hotel on Laguna Beach on Friday night. And then we have a reunion um, uh, in Anaheim uh, where we invite the four classes on each side of our class. And there will be 500 people there. And it started out kind of just us and our class. But then it grew to, well, what about ex-girlfriends and ex-boyfriends? And Mm -hmm. what about siblings? And so now, you know, it's basically, if you graduated from Troy High School any time between 1969 and 1979, you're welcome to be there. And literally, there will be 500 people. There. Jeez,
0: that's incredible. So you are here in Paragould. You've graduated high school. Right. Were you immediately like, I'm going into law?
1: I knew I wanted to be a lawyer in the second grade. How did that happen? Beats me. No, really, I I love history. I, I'm I, if you know, I tell folks if I could have figured out a way to make money at history, I never would have gone to law school. But I'm <laughs> pretty sure there's really no way to make a whole lot of money at history. Yeah. Um, and uh, I love the presidents. I love reading about the presidents. It it occurred to me just literally how many of them, especially the early ones, the founders, were lawyers. Mm-hmm. And you know, people don't like. Um, People bad mouth lawyers, but uh, A, I've never found a profession that gives away more of its time than mm-hmm. the law, than lawyers do, mm-hmm. and B, um, uh, you know, just like every other kind of profession, yeah, there are rotten apples, but sure. uh, for the most part, you know, um, advancements in our civil rights happen because of lawyers. Advancements in um, the way people are treated in the workplace happen because of lawyers. Pinto gas tanks don't blow up anymore because of lawyers. Mm -hmm. Just on and on and on and on.
0: Yeah. So you, uh, and I I share with you a love of history as well. Um, Could talk about that for a long time, I'm sure, and would love to do that at some point. But you then go to law school where?
1: I went to law school at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville.
0: Okay. And did you know when you left there, was it just kind of like, I want to eventually get back to Northeast Arkansas, or was it like just wherever I can get a job kind of thing?
1: Um. Well, by then, um, Melody and I, uh, my wife, uh, we uh, we knew that we wanted to uh, to be married and have a family. Um, I think Northeast Arkansas probably was our primary area. Is that where we, she's from, your wife? She is from LA. Okay, uh, Lower wow. Ar- Lower Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. And uh, we met at a- uh, she was a student at ASU, and it's kind of you know. I love Arkansas. It's like two degrees of separation from everything. Mm -hmm. And um, one of my brother's roommates was her ex-boyfriend and her roommate was an ex-girlfriend of mine. Mm -hmm. And um, we met uh, um, through that. And um, so we date, we were dating through my last year of law school and she was getting her MBA at Arkansas state. And um, so when I first got out of law school though, I went to work for the AG's office uh mentioned steve clark uh who's from leechville and Mm -hmm. um uh, i was general counsel to the arkansas state hospital which was really a fascinating uh um opportunity and um i met a man there who was the uh, director of mental health he was a psychiatrist named uh um bob shannon and he had a huge effect on my life uh uh, probably number three beside, behind my dad, Bob Branch, and then Bob Shannon. Yeah, you said uh, Bob Branch. You have some Bob Branch-isms. Uh, well, that's what Jeff and I, uh, Bob's son, we call them Bob Branch-isms, and it's just uh, just sayings that, that Bob would have um, about the practice of law, the business of the practice of law. That Do you remember um, any of them? Oh, yeah. Um, never fear the lawyer who comes in with a stack of books. He has nothing a lawyer who walks in with one case is going to beat you. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> it's well, it's a lot more likely to happen, with the guy who covered the lady who comes in with just the one case, because the one who's got a stack of cases they're they're having to, to argue, you know, they're putting a puzzle ah. together, but the guy with the one case, it's a lot liable, more confident. It, it's liable to be a club uh, <laughs> going right upside your head. Um, and, um, It's easier to try a case against a good lawyer than it is a poor lawyer. And, you know, at first blush, just like, there's just no way that can be true. Well, it is true. Um, And uh, I remember uh, Bob was just a phenomenal businessman and uh, the best lawyer I have ever seen. What made him a good lawyer? Well, he's brilliant, for starters. He worked, nobody would outwork Bob Branch. And, you know, he, he would... He, that's one of the things he preached was preparation, preparation, preparation. Um, you, do, you don't control what your facts are, um, uh, but you can control how hard you work and how prepared you are mm. when you when you show up. And I can tell you that. And 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 my other uh, senior partner was Bob Thompson, who's a phenomenal lawyer as well. And I can tell you that knowing, let's just say, the rules of evidence. Knowing the rules of evidence, being able to cite just a few of them from rote, just rote memory. Um, the hearsay is an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth in the matter asserted. It's 801, uh, rule 801 of the Arkansas rules of evidence. You pop that out, and you've intimidated everybody in the room.
0: I <laughs> are like I'm out of my league.
1: And um, that's effective.
0: Wow. So when you started working um, – with Bob, um, were you a prosecuting attorney? Is like, is that where you well, started out at? The the
1: so we we um we start. I started at Branch Thompson in February of 1985, um, and the new guy at Branch Thompson was the prosecuting attorney. Um, Bob Thompson was the city attorney. The new guy was the deputy city attorney who tried all the misdemeanor cases in what was then called municipal court. So it's it's the proverbial, I learned how to swim by being thrown in the deep end. And the first jury trial I ever saw, I tried it. It was a murder case.
0: Really? Well, that was what year?
1: 1985. Was it a murder case here in Paragold? Yes. And the, the, there was no public defender system, so the municipal judge would just go down the list of lawyers, and whoever's turn was next, that's who got appointed the case. Well, on this murder case, it was Donna Hamilton, a phenomenal lawyer. Been mm-hmm. on the podcast. And and, and just a, a funny guy, tells mm-hmm. great stories, but a tremendous lawyer. And uh, that's when I realized at least the first half of Bob Branch's comment, it's easier to try a case against a good lawyer than a poor lawyer was true, because Donis just worked me to death, um, filing these things called motions and lemony, which are basically uh, asking the court to rule ahead of time on evidentiary issues and um, whether he knew it or not he was kind of steering me in the direction of things I needed to be thinking about Mm. and causing me to then think about well what evidentiary issues do I want to know about ahead of time Mm. and uh, just getting to uh, to sit across uh, the courtroom from Donis and 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 trying my case and watching him try his case was a phenomenal opportunity for me so how long did you serve in the prosecuting attorney role? well off and on f- until 2008 um when i left the firm to take the bench um obviously there were a lot of other new lawyers who came some who came and went and some who came and stayed uh but um when we were between uh, associates i would do it um with a lot of help from Jeff. Uh, and then. But you do it because you wanted to do it or because you were
0: kind of just like, there's oh, no I, other option. You got to do it. I loved it. Really? Oh, what did you it. like about serving as a prosecutor?
1: Well, you get to be righteously indignant um, <laughs> and, and uh, A, get paid a little bit for it. Um, but, you know, I liked being the, the voice of the community. I liked um, getting to, to, as a good prosecutor is very careful in A, what they file to make sure you know that you should not file something that you can't envision yourself trying to a jury and then b after you do that you get to pick what you try to a jury so tell me this because i want to know
0: i'm very curious you find out you're going to be serving as a prosecuting attorney uh you're going to be prosecuting somebody say Mm -hmm. for a murder case whatever Mm -hmm. What's the first thing you have to do? Like, do you have to go and like you, you go to the police station to collect evidence? The, you start the, like the you will, reading news clipping, Like, what do you do? No, doing? the
1: police bring send you a file. They've completed their investigation, or at least they they, they believe they've completed their investigation. And so you read that, and you're looking for um, to make sure. So there are these things called model jury instructions, and and those are what the the jury is going to be read that the has to be proved. Right, mm-hmm. So one of them lists the elements of the crime. In order for Joe Blow to be found guilty of murder in the first degree, the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt the following things. One, two, three. So you, you sh- I would go to the model jury instructions. And as I read through that police file, I'm looking for things that I can prove that meet all those elements. Huh. Have you ever had someone that you're like, I'm not sure he's guilty or she's guilty? Sure. You don't file that charge. Interesting. No, a prosecutor's job is not to win cases. A prosecutor's job is to do justice. Mm. Sometimes justice means you don't file the case. Sometimes you might file that case and learn more and decide. As you get going, like, oh, okay. And, and justice it. means you dismiss that case. Uh, it's called pros. It's an abbreviated Latin term that means you choose not to prosecute. Oh. And so. How much of the
0: job is uh, Charisma. On the lawyer side, like, like being able to you know like debate and get up there and, and use words to articulate your case well, well.
1: The first thing you have to be you, you can't you can't pretend to be somebody else. Um, but I think some of us probably um, the opportunity. I mean, I have I you put me in a group of three people. I don't know, and you know there, I remember this comic who said, "Welcome to such and such place where the." extroverts look at your shoes and the introverts look at their shoes. Well, I'm not far past that, but you put me in a room full of 150 people. I don't know. I can talk all day long. And so I found it really easy to, to talk to juries. Huh? And, um, I, uh, uh I what enjoyed how you, you
0: found it easy to talk to juries.
1: Um, I found it. I enjoyed the act of trying a lawsuit. I enjoyed the, all right, so it's like this. We talked about the rules a while ago. There's four of us, and we're playing Monopoly. One of them has read the rules. Who's going to win? The guy who's read the rules, right? Right. So preparation, 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 the things you learned from, you know, Bob Branch, from Bob Thompson, um, and then just the thrill of getting a case ready to go and getting to try that in front of a jury. Yeah. And I I liked I liked making closing arguments. Um, How long would you uh, prep for a closing argument? You know, uh, at first, um, I would just sweat them out and maybe, uh, you know, all day the day before or uh, as you're getting it ready for trial. Eventually, I just developed a one-page outline for my closes that I would move from case file to case file to case file because, you know, I, I just developed um the way i like to you know you need to know how am i going to get started and how am i going to shut up and sit down mm. and the rest of it you, you if you know your facts and you know your case you, you just fill them in as you go mm. and um i always like to use the jury instructions because um that's what you have to prove mm. so that's what you want to talk about
0: so you served on and off of that row for over 20 years yes uh I'm curious, are there any cases that come to mind as some of the most interesting or unique cases that you served?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I guess the one that most people, if they've been around a while, would would, uh, recognize, and this one didn't go to trial. Um, He pled guilty, and that was the murder of uh, Dr. B.W. Jones and Mrs. Jones in their home. And that happened in probably like 89. And And what happened in that? Well... (laughs) um, so the chief of police at the time was Dennis Hyde, and he called me and said, hey, we need you to come out to the, to the Jones house right away. And oh, come we, to the Jones house. Yeah, and we were in firm meeting. We had firm meeting every Monday morning at 630. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know who Dr. Jones was. I didn't know where the Jones house was. And Where was um, it at? Um, it's been torn down. It was on, uh, like, you know, where Clover Circle comes into uh, uh, 49. It was just a couple houses north of that. Huh. On the east side of the road. I came up. It was torn down. It's old. Uh, uh, I don't know. Okay. Um, so you show uh, up at the house, uh, and so uh, I'm, so, uh, Dennis. Dennis, calm down. I I, don't, I can't understand what you're saying. He said, I don't know if I can calm down. So I get out of him. What what I needed and I hang up and I said, um, Doctor Jones and his wife, they're murdered in their home, uh, and. <laughs> Bob Branch is like, oh yeah, I know where that is. We used to play bridge, <laughs> so he tells me. Of course, Bob to, knows the person so, has uh, some uh, sort uh, of history story uh, he can yeah, tell you. How how to get out there? And actually, the first person and,
0: ever to play bridge in uh, history was.
1: And yeah. yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, the the doctor and Mrs. were still. They had just been found. They were still lying where they had been murdered. Is that common that a lawyer would be
0: called out to a case like that? I mean, to a uh, home. It, right? it,
1: it it that probably happened to me only. Three or four times okay. at the absolute most First, this we, is a big we, deal we don't have very many murders right or we still don't we didn't then and we still don't um, but uh, yeah I think obviously because of uh, their standing in the community um, and there were very few clues um, uh, there were a lot of things that were there that weren't taken that you might that you and I might have thought would have been taken like a shot yes Um and uh, just some of the things, especially about one of the bodies, um, and we were at a loss. And one a police officer started developing information that, um, and this is this has all been in the newspapers sure. and things like sure. that. So um, that Doctor Jones uh, might have had a girlfriend. And so, long story short, on New Year's Eve, that happened in early December, it seems. On New Year's Eve night, we issued prosecutor subpoenas, Jeff and I, to bring in the, the girlfriend and this other couple, all of whom were named Edwards, but the, the girlfriend was not related to the other Edwards. When you say and bring
0: in, you mean to the jail for a question?
1: To Branch Thompson Hours. Oh. It, yeah, the place smelled like cigarette smoke forever. <laughs> um, and all the cops smoked. And um, they were each put in a different part of the office and interviewed. And um, the girlfriend decided that she would tell us that um, uh, the doctor had paid uh, the, the Edwards' money to um, have Mrs. Jones killed. Why did she offer
0: that? Was that easier for her to, like, just offer that information? Or is there a little bit of a, a game that you have somebody to play? To oh, like-
1: I'm, I'm sure she thought that there would be a quid pro quo for that know that that would help her because you know she doesn't know um that the edwards did not cause that death so she doesn't know that she's not uh, involved in a capital murder Mm. because you know um, it became pretty obvious that in fact there there had been a, a conspiracy is a group of people meeting together to cause a crime and there is a substantial step taken to cause that crime to happen well there had been a payment okay dr jones had paid money to these people he was a co-conspirator and we didn't know how he got dead you know why he was killed but we did know we could prove a conspiracy against those people so we tried the the mr edwards first and got a conviction
0: Mr. Edwards was, did you say?
1: Um, he was one of the couple. Um, there was the girlfriend. Okay. His, okay. And then, then there was Mr. and Mrs. Edwards. And um, we were able to show that comings and goings of him in the doctor's office, etc. And then um, after he was convicted, um, the uh, the lawyer for Mrs. Edwards pled her unconditionally to the court. And Judge Burnett, who tried the first case, sentenced her to the exact same the Greene County jury had sentenced uh, Mister Edwards to, and um, uh, so, and I remember Judge Burnett telling him, telling her, I know, I know that you all are caused the death of of these people, and hopefully someday it'll improve. So there we sit, a couple of years, literally. Probably two years later, uh, Chief Hyde and I are having lunch uh, at the Oaks. If you remember, that was a mm-hmm. restaurant out at what was then the Ramada Inn. Mm-hmm. And um, he gets a call. And it, uh, Bruce Higgins has called the police department. Bruce ran Higgins Jewelry yes. on oh, Pruitt yeah. Street. And Bruce was a a very um, highly qualified uh, gemologist who, um, in fact, had not only made some of Mrs. Jones' jewelry, which had been taken, but had repaired other pieces of her jewelry. And he's he's telling us that these two guys came in with some of Mrs. Jones' jewelry, wanting me to appraise uh, it for them. So, um, of course, the he, t- he had said, come back at 3 o'clock. So the police, you know, they're waiting, and they take them down uh I mean, that's awesome. I, I'm like, Dennis, leave me at the office uh, and y- y- y'all go do your police work. <laughs> uh, because for a lot of reasons, A, I didn't have a Are they just like undercover
0: or they just like come out the back and like take them down?
1: Um, it was, it was, yeah, they, there were uniformed officers out of view. And then gotcha. uh, playing okay. like dentist chief didn't wear a uniform. The detectives yes. don't wear a uniform. So. Gotcha. And, uh, and plus I didn't want to make I didn't want to be a witness because I w- darn sure wanted to be able to try that loss absolutely um and so those guys immediately roll over on where they got this jewelry and it's the most bizarre story they had traded it to some guy uh, who lived on a mountaintop at Heber Springs for quote counterfeit Indian rocks i.e fake arrowheads that they had made themselves so
0: they got the jewelry for the
1: like arrowheads that. and then so we we our law enforcement goes with the state police getting them involved um and there had been a, two murders in uh, craighead county not too long after the joneses and mrs nissenbaum and mrs cooksey and um there was a state police investigator jerry brogdon who all along had thought it was the same person um the rest of us didn't because those two homes had kind of been tossed, and there was nothing out of place really at the Jones home. So anyway, um, they go and they arrest this guy. They they get a search warrant in Cleveland County, um, arrest this guy who immediately rolls over on where he got it. And long story short, it led to um, some major drug dealers. that, that Arrests were made uh, as a result of... of Bruce Higgins tip and the good police work of Perigold and the state police and, and uh whomever from Jonesboro. And um, we uh, recovered um, some diamonds that had been stolen in Virginia and a murder that he had committed there, uh, seized a motorhome that we were able to sell for. So a lot it money. went back to a guy who had committed other murders. Oh yeah. His name was Leroy Bullock. Leroy Bullock. And Bullock. Leroy killed and, and here's here's how. So all right, he, he Um, Virginia knows he killed their people because somebody didn't die and he was somehow knew some, some people in that family. All right. So they've got a warrant out for Leroy, but they have no idea where to find him. We found him. And, um, but we have to give him to Virginia because we still can't make our case. Well, in Virginia, um, their witness, their eyewitness, was an 80 year old man who Leroy had shot and who didn't die.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, and in Virginia, if you if you only get life, there's you can be paroled. Well, in Arkansas, there is no parole from life. So the Virginia prosecutor decides he'd like to bring Arkansas in on the deal. Uh, so um, he would waive the death penalty for Leroy. We would all waive the death penalty for Leroy, but he, he would it would be in a situation where he can never get out of prison. Mm-hmm. And part of the deal was we would get, I think forty five minutes to to interview Leroy for our our case. And um, it turns out that he had family members who owned a beauty salon in Jonesboro where Mrs. Jones frequented. And he was in there one day when Ms. Jones was in there and he noticed all the jewelry on her fingers, and he followed her home. Wow. Then he comes back several days later. Knocks on the door. The doctor answers. This is Leroy's story, okay? Knocks, and he knows nothing about the people who've been convicted of the conspiracy or anything like that. Knocks on the door, and he's got a bouquet of flowers, according to Leroy, which he extends out to the, to the doctor. And when the doctor reaches for it, he has a pistol. And, and, and according to Leroy, the doctor says, my wife's not here. And Leroy says, I said, good. And he said, but she just run to the store. She'll be right back. <laughs> and Leroy demands money, and the doc says, well, I've already paid you once. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and one thing I left And this out, guy doesn't know he all, doesn't all know that stuff. About no, it. no, no. You're probably no, just no, like, no, no, no. I cannot believe what and, I'm hearing and, right and, now. And when, when Mrs. Uh, Edwards entered her unconditional plea, she said – We were, this is a quote, we were just scamming the doc. What's he going to do? Call the cops? So they were taking his money, making him think that they were going to kill her, all of which is still a very valid conspiracy. There was nothing legally, ethically, or morally wrong with their conspiracy convictions.
0: Okay, so that would have been changed then. Whether it was just a scam
1: or... Right. But so we were just uh, amazed that... um, uh, how that did he say why he that, ended up shooting the doctor? He shot everybody,
0: just because he was, and he told he confessed. Yes, so he was just like, and I he, mean,
1: I what did he say the motive was? Money, straight up, straight up money. He had taken certain items of uh, value from the uh, from the Jones home. He had taken the the jewelry off of Mrs. Jones's. Apparently, he had shot the doctor, and she came home. So he was just going through the house finding stuff. And um she was killed in another part of the house from where Dr. Jones was. And he had taken her jewelry, there's some things obviously missing out of a safe. Um and uh but the, the 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 amazing thing was how he to say he innocently tied it into the, the Edwards portion of the case, that may be a weird word to use, but that's exactly what wow. he did, it, and it just jihad perfectly. <laughs> and I, I can remember after it was all over, um, we, uh, some, some of the investigators, we were all visiting, and, and Judge Brett Davis was the Craighead de- deputy prosecutor, so he's working their end of it, and I'm working our end of it. And <laughs> Britt and I known each other since undergrad school. We were roommates in law school. Mm-hmm. Uh, we took the bench at the exact same time when we became judges. And so a lot of us were sitting around talking and I made the comment that, man, that is just like catching lightning in a bottle.
0: Oh, seriously. And
1: one of the state police investigators says, no, this is like, and you remember at Linwood Steakhouse, it was the place to go, right? Mm-hmm. For, for Jonesboro and Paragould mm-hmm. back then. The state police investigator said, no, this is like going to the Gulf on your vacation in the summer Going deep sea fishing and leaning over the side, and your wedding ring sliding off your finger, and you see it just descend in the water. Then on Valentine's Day, you take your wife to Linwood and she cuts into the mahi mahi, and there's your wedding ring.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and man, you got to be a part of it. It, it, it. Yes. And, you know, whenever I <laughs> asked you what uh, one of the most unique cases, I didn't imagine that would
1: be. Oh, and, and, so unique! Know, truth is absolutely stranger than fiction. It absolutely.
0: You need to make that into a book. Well, I, you know, somebody has not already.
1: No one has done that already. Um, I I know where the files are, and and um, uh, so yeah, I, I have several in my head that I think are book worthy. There's, there's what's another, your other? Well, there was another one. And it's another story for another day. But it was about a uh, a gentleman who was found all but beaten to death out. Um, near the trestles uh, on the north north edge of Paragould um, and we um, uh, charged, well, that that's another story for yes. another day.
0: Yeah, well, we'll definitely have to have you back on to uh, process that. So eventually you become judge. How, do, how does someone become the judge?
1: Well, judge is an elected position. Mm-hmm. We have a, a very large judicial district, both geographically and the number of people in it. Um, It's the largest geographically, the largest district in the state. It's Green, Clay, Green, Craighead, Mississippi, Poinsett, Crittenden, six counties, nine courthouses, because um, Clay has two courthouses, whether they need them or not, as does Jonesboro. Lake City is a county seat. And um, there are 12 judges, there are about 290,000 people in uh, the district. It's bigger than Delaware and Rhode Island put together and we carry an average caseload each of somewhere around 2250 cases a year wow and so um people had mentioned to me from time to time about running for judge and i never i always gave the same answer no i i don't have the uh, a judicial disposition i i i don't think i could behave well enough on the bench consistently but what, do you, know, what do you mean by that? Um, that I was quick-tempered, mm-hmm. um, primarily, and you know, a smart aleck, mm-hmm. uh, which I still work hard to. <laughs> to the, 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 I'm better at the temper. Um, but then a weird thing happened as my children grew up and matured, so did I. Mm. And so 2008 comes along, and um, you can't run for judge in Arkansas after you turn 70, or else you forfeit your retirement. So there's there's usually a judge ship or two rotating out, you know. So there was an empty judge ship and Melody and I talked about it and decided that uh, that's something that we would give a shot. And so I announced for judge we started we worked really really hard early on like you know, w- when you're going to run for judge, it's not like running for secretary of state. Anybody can run for secretary of state, right? Mm-hmm. Well, only lawyers can run for judge. Mm -hmm. So there's really two campaigns inside of that campaign. One is to run all the other lawyers out of the race, and the other one is necessary only to the extent that you fail to run all the other lawyers out of the race. (laughs) So we worked really, really, really hard in projecting effort to let other potential candidates know this is Mm -hmm. what you're up against. Like if there was a school board election in Truman, we had volunteers or one of the family waving Randy Philower's signs as people are coming out of that school board election at Truman. And it wasn't to cause people voting on that school board election in mm-hmm. Truman to remember me. It was to scare all the, ra- the lawyers and points <laughs> at County. Holy cow, look at what we would have to put up with. Yeah. So I had an announced opponent who at the last minute decided not to file. And uh, there was a wonderful guy um, uh, who lived here in Paragould named Ralph Ratton. Ralph was a retired dentist mm. and a phenomenal uh, storyteller great vocal politician and can you remember bill brewer and, and i going over many times and uh, sitting sitting at the feet of ralph mm. listening to him tell uh, campaign stories and my favorite ralph Ratton line is boys there's not but two ways to run scared or unopposed if you ain't one you damn well better be the other and i've been both and he's right. There aren't but two ways to run, and unopposed is a lot better. That's the way to go. Yes. So you've been serving as judge since 2008? Yes. Well, uh, elected at eight, took the bench the January the 1st,
0: 2009. 2009. And explain to me what it's like to be a judge uh, because, you know, our average listener, we have no idea, right? All that we know is that, yeah, we have the stories of the person who shows up at the courthouse. Maybe we've been there, traffic violation, whatever else. And it's just like, here comes the judge. And, and, and like, man, like, it's terrifying. Like, to be on the uh, – which maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. I, one time, uh, Robert, I don't know if I've told you the story. I've had a period before a judge, and it was whenever I was in Louisville working on my master's. And I got a speeding ticket in a school zone and which you had to immediately go, I had to go on the day I had finals, had to go to the court. And it was so crazy. Cause you know, here comes the, uh, I think it was the, I think it was the judge that was saying, this is like, all right, cell phones off. If your cell phone rings, it's like, I'm throwing you in jail. It's like, that's what I was hearing. If you talk, I'm throwing you in jail. I'm like, I'm going to jail. There's no way I'm going to get out of this thing. So it's a very intimidating experience. I know it from this perspective. What's it
1: like from your perspective? Well, um, first, what you're describing is district court. Judge Stidham is our district court judge. He mm-hmm. handles all the misdemeanors and small okay. claims. And so, probably, if a hundred people see a judge, ninety-seven or more of them are going to see Judge Stidham. Okay. We do felon. The twelve of us do felonies and civil matters over twenty-five thousand dollars and domestic cases.
0: Domestic is Pro- just probate. a fight with a uh, within the home or divorce, okay, custody. custody.
1: Yep paternity, things like that. Uh, now, uh, for me, my docket is 100% criminal and I like it that way because mediation, uh, has taken so many of the jury trials out of non-criminal things. Things go through mediation and they settle there and hence they don't have jury trials. Well, I want to do the jury trials. I like doing the jury trials so when I was in practice. So I, that's, if I, yeah, I, well, I bet my court reporter and I, since May of 21, have tried 15 jury trials. Wow. And, and you those imagine, are typically
0: going to be, I mean, those are big cases. Are those
1: all are just well, always going to be murder? Well, because of COVID, you know, there was such a backup. Because okay. the Supreme Court, our Supreme Court, Uh, disallowed jury trials for periods of time because of the virus and because of, you know, the, the the pressure that picking that, that social distancing would put on facilities, et cetera. So yeah, once things opened back up, it was uh, mostly murders, um, some attempted murders um, uh, in some areas, uh, child sexual abuse cases Mm -hmm. Uh, which I tried a whole lot of as, as a prosecutor. And um, so does,
0: or how many of your trials then are jury and how many are not like percentage wise?
1: Um, so um, if someone is on probation and the state alleges that they had done something to violate a condition of their probation, that's a hearing just in front of me. Okay. a Hearing it's a called a bench trial. Um, but people who are, if it's a new charge, guilt or innocence, um, I've never had a bench trial for that. They're all jury trials. Okay,
0: so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions right now. So bench trial, um, what are you looking for? Like, And so like someone shows up. It's, it's. From my understanding, it's kind of up to you on the sentence, right, if it's a bench trial? If it's a bench trial. Everything's up to me on a bench everything's trial. Everything's up to you. So how do you decide um, what you're going to give somebody? Like what all plays into that?
1: Well um, – First, if it's a revocation hearing, they're already on probation or a suspended sentence. So they've okay. already been convicted of that. Already have a strike against them. And so the, the burden of proof to, to, uh, for the state to meet on whether their, their probation or suspended sentence should be revoked is called a preponderance to the evidence, which simply means the greater weight. So if I'm convinced by the greater weight of evidence, which if you can imagine the scales of justice, that means they're just tipped ever so slightly in the state's favor, then they're found guilty. Um, I want to know what their criminal background is. I want to, you know, is it a, is it a let's say that they're it's a drug case, and they're being revoked because they missed seeing their probation officer and they haven't paid their fines. Well, that, that person, the public, does not need to pay to put that person in prison. Certainly mm-hmm. not the first time around, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And there are sentencing guidelines um, that the Supreme Court has promulgated, and. Um, we're not bound by those, but certainly that's something to refer to, and, and they would not dictate that that person go to prison. If it's someone with a violent past or uh, they're on probation for a violent conviction or the basis for their uh, their revocation is violence, then, yeah, I'm looking at penitentiary time for that person.
0: And how many of the people that you see come through over the years are repeat offenders? Like, I'm just curious. Uh,
1: recidivism is super high, especially with drug offenses.
0: Okay.
1: I, there was a man from Paragould who I remember prosecuting in my very first year as prosecutor, and I would prosecute him periodically. And then I remember him appearing in front of me after I took the bench here in Greene County. And uh, I said, um, uh, Kenny, are, are you you still at this? And he said, yep, Mr. Filares, I'm doing life on the installment plan. <laughs> And which it was one of the funniest and saddest, saddest things I've ever heard at the exact same time, yeah. and I've and I've used that line on people who, especially younger people who are back for their second or third time, you know. And I tell them the story about this guy, and I say, you know, uh, is there a worse thing than than to realize that's what you're doing? Life on the installment. And
0: how do plan? They, how do people get out of that cycle? You you've had a
1: is it does it? I think. But, uh, well, you know, some people, you've heard of being born with a silver spoon. Mm-hmm. Well, some people are are born with a, with a iron anchor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they are just born into harm's way. It's generational, isn't it? it, it in many instances, it is. And um, so I think at first, it ta- and, and I listened to uh, Sonia Fanasiela's mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. podcast last night. I listened to that. And uh, she is so spot on on the kind of conversation she has with her clients and them needing to admit to themselves first, what's 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 the basic issue here? And right now, our our um, public defender system is so underfunded, so understaffed that that someone to get to have a Sonia Fontesilla is a blessing straight from God himself mm-hmm. uh, because they don't they just don't have time. And that's something that our legislature so sorely needs to address. Um, But I I think, you know, I'm a big, I was a drug court judge my first seven years on the bench. I'm a huge believer in those types of specialty courts. Mm. You got to want to do it uh, as, as a participant, but it worked for some people. Mm. Um, And, uh, but I think one of the things too is, um, we need to recognize that, yeah, uh, using illegal drugs is a crime, but it's also um, a manifestation of some sort of illness.
0: 100%, 100%, yeah.
1: And we have to figure out ways to treat the illness itself. I mean, you, you can seminars are available for judges, what, what judges need to know about drugs. And it'll have MRIs of people's brains uh, and comparing them uh, – when they're under the influence and when they're not or a normal brain with a brain of someone who has been using meth for two or three years. And it, I mean, you and I can look in and pick out the dramatic difference in that. Yeah. And we've got to figure out a way as a society and make the determination as a society that, we we need to invest our money some other way because we cannot build enough beds mm. to incarcerate all of those people. We can't hire enough uh, probation officers to properly supervise all of those people. We need to we need we need another. Um, I kind of hate to use this term when we're talking about crime and recidivism, but we we need another bullet for our gun. Another something that we can fire uh, to. To try to help alleviate and solve that problem.
0: Yeah, because what we're doing is clearly not working. And I think, I can't remember, you said you listened to Sonia's episode. I can't remember if I brought this up uh, in that episode or not, but I worked uh, for a while for Arkansas Counseling Associates and I was in the home a lot and uh, of, of people who uh, struggle with drug addiction and all sorts of other kind of issues. And I grew up in a very just white middle, upper mm-hmm. middle class home. I never went uh into these some of these other areas and because of that I I kind of just judged incorrectly at times it's like these people are just lazy or they're just dumb or they're just whatever else Um, and I say that with great shame because then once I went into these homes and I got to know the stories because that's what I got paid to do is literally sit in there and hear their stories I was just like man if I would have grown up like this person, I probably would have been worse off even than they are whenever I would hear their stories. And, you know, Seth Haynes is a, uh, an author that I read. He's a lawyer actually in Northwest Arkansas. And he has a book on addiction. Um, and he says, the question is never, uh, why the addiction, but why the pain? Because mm-hmm. he said somewhere along the way, there's the addiction is meant to cover up some deep pain, which Sonia spoke to a little bit she of did. trying to figure out like, and that's unique for everybody, which is why it's not just a one size fits all. And it, and you're, I've never really thought about that. But, yeah, we need more people because if you have more people who are working and doing the jobs you're doing, then they have more time to sit and actually listen and maybe help offer some sort of counsel along the way.
1: And a way to better train folks. And that's not knocking the quality of training that people have. I mean mm-hmm. – the, the folks who are in the probation parole department, they they work hard. They're good people, uh, I, and I, by no stretch of the imagination should anyone assume that I'm saying they don't do a good job. I'm saying they're outmanned and outgunned, and but and gun as a not literally, um, but uh, what we are doing is not working. Um, and you know, better we need to put people in prison we're afraid of, not people we're mad at. Mm. And right now, sometimes that's a gray line. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's a powerful statement that I'm going to have to chew on some more. Um, you know, and, and, you
1: know, it's a big difference between a guy who's got 80 kilos of methamphetamine in the back of a Hertz rental truck as opposed to somebody who's got less than two grams that's clearly for, for private use. Totally. You know, I'm, so when we talk about... Uh, drug crimes and um, trying to treat the addiction. We're not talking about the purveyors of mass amount of drugs. We're talking about the person who is on the other side of that spectrum.
0: And I do think we have got to be creative. You know, I was actually thinking about reaching out to Brad Snyder and having a conversation with him about this, but I'm about to finish a book right now called the well-gardened mine. And it's on a, uh, of all things, a gardening program that's being implemented in different uh, prisons. uh, And just like the power of just something like having inmates work on a garden, um, like just things that it literally can do to the psyche. And so it's like, and whether it's gardening or whatever, I think like it would be wise for us to spend time creatively thinking and critically thinking about like, what are ways if we are going have these guys in prison or wherever it is, like are, are, are there things we can do to help deal with those emotional wounds or those generational curses or whatever they are that we can break those things, break those cycles.
1: Um, yeah, I don't know the answer. But. Well, it's like domestic violence. That is a learned behavior. There is not a domestic violence gene. It is learned behavior, and and you can see that so clearly as, you, as people appear in front of you uh, charged with uh, domestic violence. Wow.
0: I'm curious, before we go into rapid-fire questions, one of the questions I had is just how do you think being a judge – has changed your perspective on life? Because I would think it, it has
1: somewhat. I've worked really hard at making sure it didn't. Mm. Um, there is There are two terms that that judges use. One's called black robe disease, and the other one's robitis. And I wanted to make darn sure that, uh, I, that I didn't fall... Victim to either one of those. I tell folks that I try to behave on the bench like my mom was sitting in the back of the courtroom, waiting to chew me out for any transgression <laughs> that she thought may occur uh, while I was on the bench. I don't like to be called judge outside the courthouse. I want mm-hmm. people to call me what they've always called me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, how has it changed my life? I, I, I think that um, you know it, you you do um, become much more cognizant of what you say when you're out amongst people yeah. because, um, you know, you don't want people to misinterpret it as, 100%. as uh, some sort of policy statement yep. or uh, a prediction of what you might do. Yes. Uh, so I, I, um, you know, as a lawyer, you're, you get paid to keep your mouth shut because mm. of attorney client privilege. Mm. And I, I tried to treat being a judge a, as much like that as I humanly can. Mm.
0: That's excellent. Well, I, we're going to have to have you back on at some point in the future to talk about those other uh, cases. Um, and books, I, books two and three. Books two and three. That's exactly right. And so what we'll do for now is uh, we'll end like we always do with just a list of rapid fire questions. And so um, if you're ready, okay, we'll dive right into it. So first question is either what is the last show or if you don't watch shows, what was the last movie you watched or what is the last book you read?
1: Well, I read, I like to read, I read a lot and I usually keep about three books going at one time. Uh, So I'm, I'm, I'm laboring through a phenomenal book by a guy named Ron Chernow about Alexander Hamilton, Mm. but it weighs more than a newborn child. (laughs) I would never make it through that. Uh, 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 um, And then there's a guy named Amor Towles uh, who writes fabulous fiction, uh, A Gentleman from Moscow and The Lincoln Highway, two great, great books that I recently read Um. Well, almost anything on Abraham Lincoln.
0: Yeah.
1: And I've, I've always loved poetry. Um, I, I, I became enamored with poetry as a senior in high school at Troy High, Florida, California. My first poem I fell in love with is called Curiosity by Alistair Reed. And uh, other great poems that I like it would be If by Rudyard Kipling and Of History and Hope by Miller Williams, who was actually tenured faculty at the U of A for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And so I've recently read a book called the Dharma of poetry edited by a guy named John uh, Brim and he's boot. He's a Buddhist mm-hmm. and, you know, Buddhism, Jihaw, with a whole lot of Christianity. Yeah. Uh, and so I found that it fit. It tucks in nicely with my Methodism. <laughs> uh, and so th- that I read a lot. But the last movie I saw was the new Minions movie with my two oldest grandchildren. Hey,
0: there you go. Uh, and um, It's a little bit louder than the Alexander it, it, Hamilton it, stuff it, you're diving it, into. It, it is.
1: It is. Yeah.
0: That's excellent. Uh, what is your favorite band?
1: My favorite band would be, oh, throwbacks, you know, Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones. Okay. Uh, I'm a creature. I graduated from high school in Southern California in 1974, and as we all began to get our driver's license, you can imagine the number of rock and roll venues that were available to us. And so we saw people all the time. I saw um, Linda Ronstant open for Jackson Brown when her backup band was a group that was going to become the Eagles at Fullerton Junior College in 1973. What a time to be alive. Yeah. Yeah, for example. Led's
0: what's your favorite Led Zeppelin song? I don't know. That's like how do you name a favorite Led Zeppelin song? But
1: uh, you know, I think I'm going to fall back on the "Stairway to Heaven." Yeah, uh, classic. And, and then Rolling Stones. Right there. I mean, there are so many. "Sympathy for the Devil," um, uh, "Tumbling Dice," just just pretty much anything that yeah, that the, that the Stones good, did are good. I liked "Credence." Yeah, um, that's a good one. And then moving forward a little bit, you know, Tom Petty. Uh, oh, yeah. And he was, such, he was such a great live act. Uh, oh, very much so. And so just really- My wife anything. and I
0: were watching one of his uh, old school, I don't know if it was from the 80s or I can't remember, I think it was the 80s of him, just a live show that was on YouTube now. It was like, what a showman.
1: Yeah, maybe the best album ever was Wildflowers by Tom Petty. Oh, fantastic album.
0: I agree with you 100%. Um, what is your favorite meal?
1: Oh, uh, it Well, anything with my grandkids. We have four grandchildren, two, Jordan, who and her husband, uh, Adam, live in Rogers, and they have Caroline, who just started kindergarten, kind of break your heart. Oh, She's the oldest, and Hattie, who will be two soon. And then Olivia, our youngest, uh, she and her husband, Chase, live in Hillcrest in Little Rock, and they have two boys. So anything with them was good, but if, but if, it's, if I'm out at a restaurant and I get to order mm-hmm. what I want and I'm at a good place – I will take the shrimp and grits, please. Shrimp and grits.
0: Come on, man. uh, I feel like
1: we're cut from the same cloth so
0: far with a lot of your answers. So what is on your nightstand right now?
1: My phone, playing a book with the sleep timer on, putting me to sleep.
0: (laughs) Keep it simple. Yep. Uh, Give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy.
1: Oh, uh, uh, well, a, of course, um, my daughter's watching them be successful, watching mm. them grow up to be happy, well-adjusted human beings. And the phenomenal mother that Molly, that uh, Jordan and uh, Olivia uh, are, uh, middle daughter Molly, uh, uh, is uh, just killing it with Walmart. She's director of global communications. She wow. lives in Tribeca, just a couple of blocks off Hudson Square in Manhattan. Mm. Wow. And uh, so watching them succeed and be happy and uh, well-adjusted, something that I took immense pride in uh, in my career early on was drug court graduations. Mm. Uh, I I love quotes. And a quote that I always use at drug court graduations was from Dr. King, who once said, life's most urgent question is what are you doing for others? And people come into drug court and it's all about them. Who can I steal from? Who do I lie to? Who do I, what do I need to do to get whatever it is I need? And you can watch them progress and reestablish relationships with children, with parents. And they, and I think that's just a nice little way to tie that up at the end because they've realized. Yeah. What can I do for others is a whole lot more important than what can I scam off somebody. And it's a whole lot more fulfilling as well. Absolutely.
0: Uh, usually I ask my last question right here about, which is what are you deeply grateful for? But before I do that, here's a question. Curveball, is your house haunted? Yes. <laughs> hey, oh, there we, you
1: we go, it. man. I knew it. But, but I need them, I, can you so, tell give us me the con- oh, Give oh, me that context. Okay. This, no. is, this is going to be nuts, all right? I, On most Saturday mornings at 4.30, somebody makes toast. Okay. You can smell it all through the house. Wait a minute. Yep. Not somebody living? Well, no, not when, especially when I'm the only one there and I'm still lying in bed. Um, it's not an electrical issue. No, it, no, it is toast. And sometimes I, you will smell cigarette smoke, but you know, what? No. We're not sitting six sure. feet apart. You'll sell cigarette, smell cigarette smoke. Like one of us just blew smoke in the other one's face. And no one has smoked in that house since at least 1999 when we bought it. And then on occasion, you know, you've been, say, in a hotel, and somebody down the hall, is they're making a lot of noise, and yeah, you can yeah. just kind of hear the scrum yeah, of yeah, the yeah. noise, but yeah. you can't make it out. Uh-huh. Sometimes you'll hear that.
0: Come on. So for those who are um, – I walk by your house two or three times a day, I feel like that's going to change everything now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to let my kids listen to this podcast. Um, so, you know, for those who have – don't know the bertig house which is uh where you live uh, this was known as ad bertig ad Bert. but um, he is considered for one of being one of the guys who kind of made Paraguay a cosmopolitan top city I mean very he was considered kind of the the uh, the Prince of, they
1: called him the Merchant Prince. Yes, of the
0: Merchant Prince of Paraguay. I mean, phenomenal and all the stuff that he was able to do here, the businesses he launched, very successful. But some things. This is what the story I heard. Some things went bad. Um, I don't know if it's because of the depression or what, but he started having some issues, started with some depression, and then his own personal depression, and then uh, killed. I don't know how he killed himself, but killed himself he in that. Shot house.
1: himself in that house in December of nineteen twenty-six, and he did it. He. He and his brother had a small S&L, and, you know, back then none of those things were regulated. And um, it had loaned his cotton company a whole lot of money that the cotton company could not repay, and it was going to fail. So I guess to avoid the ignominy of yeah. that happening, his wife, quote, went to draw him a bath. The bathtub is still there. It, it just, no. It is, it is so big that nine-year-old Olivia, when we moved in, could virtually do a flip turn in it. Come on. And it's got a really cool porcelain knob on it where that you let the water, you know, make the water stay in or let the water go out, and embossed black letters it says waste. And so why does it say waste? I don't know. That's just so she goes to draw him a bath, and and what? While she when she stepped out to do that, he shot himself in the mouth with a 25 caliber pistol. Where at in the house? We don't know. Mm. Could be down that hallway. Was he a smoker? Don't know that either. Apparently, It <laughs> loves and toast. Apparently, yes, and he, <laughs> love, toast. <laughs> he loves. He loves his four a.m. toast, and it's not hard to imagine him being an early riser. So oh, that, there you go, four thirty toast. Yeah, <laughs> wow,
0: man, that's crazy. Okay, um, we're gonna have to have. Uh, let's see, that's now at least three or four more episodes that we're gonna have to have. <laughs> so we'll end here uh, for the sake of time. What is one thing um, right right now that you're deeply grateful for?
1: Oh, my parents. My family period, you know, uh, all the way through my grandchildren. But, you know, my dad graduated from Horner'sville high school in 1954 or 1953. My mom graduated from Oak Grove high school in 1954. Mm. They were married in the fall of 54. I was born in March of 56. Um, and they taught me that God loves me and they taught me to love God. Mm. And, um, the foundation they gave my brother and me, the, the work ethic of my father was just unlike anything that one could imagine and although neither, neither of them nor any of their predecessors had ever gone to college, my mother beat in our head every day. I cannot remember a day mm. when she wasn't telling us, you're going to college. You're not going to farm, you're going to college. And um, I was, I'm so proud that she got to live to see elected judge. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. Well, I'm sure in the position that you've been in we're able to see, like you said, that some people are are, are are not born into a household where you have parents who are in your corner and rooting you on. It makes it even more special and to know what you had. And so I, I'm, I've really enjoyed this, and I hope that we have an opportunity to sit down again and talk. Hopefully, we can record it, but if not, if you ever see me walking <laughs> I, by with my dog, just say hello, whatever.
1: Well, well, I have a room in my garage that, that is called the smoke Room because we smoke cigars. In oh, it. fantastic. And you don't have to smoke a cigar to come to the Smoker Room. Yeah. You just have to not mind smelling like
0: one. That's fine. So you're welcome um, anytime. Okay, you send me the invite. I'll be there. So okay, thank you, you so much for coming on. My appreciate
1: pleasure. it. Enjoyed it very much.
0: If you are still listening, I want to thank you, as always, for listening. If you've not already done so, please check us out on our different social media platforms. We're on Instagram. We are on Facebook. If you've not done so yet, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. That helps people to find us more quickly and learn about the incredible people living here in Paraguay. So, as always, we really appreciate you listening. Until next time.